It's Thursday. Today is Thursday. I've brought you the greatest gift of all. Oh, yeah? Well, in that case... Entertain me! It's showtime. Make use of the help that God puts around you. We are not a glum lot. A promise is a promise. It's very simple. Just don't drink and go to meetings. Give time, time. Easy does it, but do it. One day at a time. We carry the message, not the alcoholic. Don't quit before the miracle happens. We're the defective characters, three guys sitting around talking about our personal experience in recovery. Hey, I'm Mike. I'm Dennis. I'm James. The opinions are our own. We do not represent any particular organization, institution, or fellowship. Mike, hey, that's me. I'm going to be sharing my experience, strength, and hope. Episode three of the Defective Characters podcast. Let's go. All right. Well, thank you guys for uh, for hanging out. I'm Mike, grateful alcoholic. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Sobriety date is uh, September eighth, two thousand fourteen. My home group is Celebrate the Morning in Celebration, Florida, uh, that does meet six days a week. I feel like a lot of people in recovery, um, they started when they were a teenager, and I don't know. I think I just had so much fear growing up that um i would get caught that i didn't i didn't really do much drinking like some here and there in high school but i my um first time i did anything rebellious i was uh let me see 16 years old and i was going to be going to the the warp tour uh like a, a rock festival with some friends and the very uh, first time that I was trying pot, I actually got caught. Um, I got busted by uh, we were we stayed at a friend of mine's house. He had a, a like a camper, like an RV, and we got everything all set up. And we're like, "This is gonna be great. We're going to the rock show tomorrow, so we're gonna smoke pot tonight." And uh, we're just idiots, and we didn't want to wait any later than nine o'clock and it just got dark and my friend's parents were still awake in the house and they saw us standing outside in big puffs of smoke. Uh, you know, like if we were smart, we would have waited a little bit longer, but they came out and they caught us. And I thought my world was over because my father was, um, one that was very stern and had never smoked pot and, you know, d- didn't drink and drive and everything else. And my, my parents were divorced and he was the really like, you know, strict one. And I thought though my world is over. It's, it's done because m- my friend's parents were good friends with him. And, um, you know, after, you know, giving us a stern talking to for about, uh, it felt like forever, but it was probably about an hour. They said that we won't tell uh, your parents because we don't know what will happen. Um, and they didn't want, they, you know, took our word that, okay, we're going to be on the up and up. And out of the four of us friends, I was really the only one that was like, okay, I'm definitely not going to mess around with anything. So I didn't uh, until I had my first actual binge drinking experience after high school graduation there was a party of mine uh at a, at a friend's house and there was going to be alcohol 
and my uh, my friend's aunt and uncle that were throwing this party whose house it was at said, we need permission for you to drink from your parents. And I knew the person I should call is my mother because my father wouldn't okay it. And she said, yeah, that's fine. He's going to be okay. He's staying there. So I did. And they had bought a bunch of beer and then a bunch of what was new at the time was Mike's Hard Lemonade. And they invited a bunch of girls over figuring they would drink the Mike's Hard Lemonade and none of the girls showed up. So I got to uh, enjoy drinking every single one of the Mike's Hard Lemonade. And it was almost like a challenge, uh, you know, where if you're at a buffet and you have your full option, you're not going to leave there uh, hungry. I felt like, um, well, I have to drink all these because they have the ball. And I felt for the first time in a while, like I was in control. Like I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to stress out about anything. And I was pretty tightly wound uh, as a teenager. And, and that was, I think the first moment I'm like, this is great. This is fantastic. And that was right before I started going to college and I had my fair share of drinks um, before I turned 21 in college, but I didn't, you know, I really wasn't into uh, getting a fake ID or anything else. I don't know why I was just, all, you know, all about, okay, well, if there's a party, I'll have drinks. And it wasn't until I turned 21 that uh, the wheels came off and I realized that I could be whoever I wanted to be. I had uh, transitioned from a college in Massachusetts where I grew up just south of Boston to um, when I, right before I turned 21, going to a school in Chicago and I was living in the dorms with a bunch of 18 year olds. So I felt like the king of the castle because at the dorm I had turned 21 and all my friends needed me, you know, and I used the term to, I could see that, you know, I, they only cared about what was going on with me as long as I could get them drinks. Um, and my 21st birthday, I went down to Seven Eleven and got a fifth of Captain Morgan and a bunch of other uh, drinks for the other 18 year olds on my floor. And within 45 minutes, I downed the entire bottle of Captain and then screamed and yelled um, and threatened everyone to get the hell out of my room. Because I wanted nothing to do with them. And I don't know why I did that. That's not a normal thing. I found out years later, thanks to going to meetings, that apparently that's not normal to drink a fifth in 45 minutes and then kick everybody who's celebrating your birthday with you out. Um, so it just it kind of became a, a spiral of I would work really hard at school and then feel like I deserve a break I deserve, you know, and it started out just, uh, just on the weekends. And then towards the end, when I graduated, I remember a graduation day at, I don't know, it had to be like maybe, maybe 10 AM. Uh, there is a seven 11, a different seven 11, but there was a convenience store in the bottom of my dorm room in Chicago. And I went in there and my roommate who uh, was still underage at this point. Uh, he was 20. His parents were coming to, you know, help him move out of the dorm. And I went in and I got a big styrofoam cooler 
and a bunch of beer and ice. And at 10 a.m., went back up and just started drinking, started having a really good time. And my uh, roommate's parents were there. And I knew that he was underage and that his parents were really well-to-do people. And I thought nothing of it by asking if they wanted a beer and everything else. And they looked at me kind of like I was a maniac. It's like, what, you know, what are you doing? Um, And I, I just thought nothing of it, you know. I thought that I was uh, the king of the castle. I had a really thick Boston accent at the time, and I really played it up. Uh, the movie The Departed was a big movie around that time, and I felt like you know uh, Matt Damon, Tom Brady, and Ben Affleck combined. You know, like th- there was, and I would really ham up the accent because I could be somebody completely different. Because the people I grew up with in Boston, Massachusetts, were or thousands of miles away. So I, I could be whoever I wanted to be. And that was really the alcohol that was telling me that. Um, I, but I graduated and I, a lot of those friends in, in college, they, they were on my uh, amends list when I went into sobriety. And a lot of them, I still haven't able to make amends in person. They won't respond back to just even a comment on Facebook or a friend of a friend, you know, telling them that things are better just because that's who I was at the time. You know, I thought that everybody loved me and that it was all good. And I was having a tough time actually seeing the truth. So uh, there were people in my life that I thought I was cutting out of my life because I didn't want to actually be around them anymore. But really, you know, it was they were the ones making the decision based on my actions. So I left college thinking that, you know, I was, uh, I was hot stuff. And my majoring in college was radio, radio broadcasting. And I applied to um, over 2000 radio stations thinking that, Oh yeah, I'm the best. Everyone's going to want me. And there was only two radio stations out of those 2000 that wanted to even talk to me. One of them was in Anchorage, Alaska. And that station in Anchorage, Alaska said, yeah, we would like to meet you though and and see if you like this place. So with your own money, you're going to have to fly here next week so we can interview you. And if you like it, then you can move here. And I didn't have $2,000 to buy that plane ticket. And the other one was in Waterloo, Iowa which at the time I couldn't even tell you where Iowa was on a map. Um, but they, because there was a, um, there was a friend of mine that went to school with me in Chicago who partied just as hard as I did. He got a job just six months earlier at that radio station and he was drinking hard and he vouched for me saying, he's really great. It's fantastic. Give him the job. And I got the job over the phone. And within seven days, I packed up everything in my Pontiac Sunfire that I could possibly fit <coughs> to the brim. It was a really small car, and I'm six foot four, and I'm driving everything that I own stuffed inside of this to the point that even I had a trash can and two pillows stuffed inside the trash can that were on my lap as I'm driving from Boston, Massachusetts to Iowa. And, um, when, when I got to Iowa, I worked at a rock station and I had an, I had an ego uh, fueled with alcohol 
that told me I could do anything. And uh, myself and uh, the other guy who I met in college that got me the job that was working at that radio station for the next year, uh, we partied uh, almost every single day during the week. We worked uh, overnights at the radio station. So at 6 a.m., we would drink till like 10 a.m. And do that and then go to sleep and then wake up at three in the afternoon and and just do it all over again. And um, we did that for three months until um, my at the time, 23rd birthday, we decided there was a casino that opened up there and we would throw myself a crazy 23rd birthday party. Um, inviting any of the, the girls that were fans of the radio station uh, and uh, friends of mine that still picked up the phone from Chicago. And we had a raucous time to the point where there was so much damage to the hotel room that I had to pay $2,500 in damages because we just trashed the place, this brand new casino. Um, with with beer, the, the I think it was uh, five hundred dollars just in beer and alcohol that we filled the bathtubs with, and I was living, you know, what I thought was the rock star dream, but really it was just um, the people that were around me that I never thought I would be hanging out with people that were doing, uh, you know, what I guess I see now as as uh, you know, it was a lot of methamphetamines in in Iowa. But a lot of these drugs that I thought were really hard drugs and I would never surround myself with these people. And it allowed me to say, well, yeah, I might be drinking a lot of alcohol and drinking and driving all the time, but at least I'm not doing that. And it made me feel like like I was above them, like they were below me. So, oh, yeah, I'm hanging out, hanging out with them. But hey, I'm not doing that. I'm not you know, putting needles in my arm. But I would always want those people around, you know, because there there were less and less people that would drink like me. And after a week after that 23rd birthday party, uh, I was driving with a friend of mine who had visited uh, from Boston, Massachusetts for the birthday party. And I got my first DUI. And um, a lot of it, I blamed him because I said I didn't even want to go out you know, tonight and you made me do it. And I was, I was so ego driven that even sitting in the back of the cop car, it was on a Tuesday night, but it was in the college part of town in Iowa where the cop, there was so, so many drunk drivers that he was actually just pulling people over. And there were four people that went into um, jail that night with DUIs. And I was, they were all younger than me. They were all like 21, 22. I was 23. And I was kind of giving them like pep talks. Like, oh, you guys, you guys got this. You know, this is, this is nothing. And I felt like absolute dirt. And I remember sitting in there and thinking, I can't believe this happened. Like, what is this? And I had in my mind something that said, okay, I'm never going to drink again. Like, this is going to be it. And I told all my friends when I got out the next day, and then I found out that I needed to get a lawyer. I had a court date. I had to get a breathalyzer then put in my car. And I didn't have any money because I had already maxed out all my credit cards 
on just a week earlier, having $2,500 in damages that I had to pay for. So I was at what a lot of people would think would be a good bottom and it wasn't mine. You know, that night my friends talked me into having a beer and I mean, they didn't have to really twist my arm that hard, you know, because they're like, listen, this happens to everybody. And everyone that I was hanging out with had, if not already had one DUI, they had a good friend or family member that already had one or more. Um, and it was just the people I was surrounding myself with. So uh, a couple months then passed and that friend that got me the job in Iowa ended up moving away. He got another radio job. So he was gone and I was uh, alone and looking for somebody. So that's where um, I first started dating somebody and um, in AA, sometimes you call them hostages. Like if you don't want to be alone, you have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, so you're not drinking alone. And um, we started dating and uh, everything was going fine and good, but it was just my alcoholism was still going. And I didn't realize that's what it was at the time. I just know that I felt better if I had a drink. And it, uh, I would always say, oh, yeah, we're partying. Like every day was a party. But really, it was usually just me in one room, her in another, and me with like a 12-pack and just drinking on my nights off or when I didn't have to work. And, um, you know, shortly after, I wasn't happy with where I was in Iowa. So I was applying for jobs and I got a job in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, you know, something that's uh, part of my story is the ge geographical cure of thinking you can move to a new place and it's a brand new thing. And I lived in Fargo, North Dakota for a while. That girlfriend at the time, I talked her into moving with me so I could continue to drink, you know, the way I wanted to because she wasn't going to stop me. And... um you know, I lived there and it just really just amped up. There was never a time that work, uh, the work got in the way of my drinking, but drinking didn't get in the way of my work in that I would always make sure that I was, uh, I was definitely hung over and there was probably still alcohol in my, my body, but I still did all my obligations. So that went on, uh, from Iowa, two years there Far Fargo, North Dakota, two years there to applying for a job in Burlington, Vermont and getting that and working, uh, working there and drinking at that point, uh, by myself for the first four months. And then, uh, the girlfriend that I had and I broke up and I was all by myself just drinking alone. I would be on Skype sometimes with that friend that I, uh, made in college that worked with in Iowa and, we would say we're not drinking by ourselves because we're on Skype drinking. And it was always like, I just needed, I needed that. Um, and I was just, I was miserable. You know, I really hated, hated myself. And I had a tough time because my career, when I was working, I could be somebody else on the radio. And then when I was not working, I had a real tough time being me again. And I just wanted to be anybody else, you know, um, just like that escapism. Um, I, I found so difficult. 
and I found um, someone that I started dating who uh, eventually became my wife who, um, you know, I fell in love with her day one. Uh, I thought that she partied and drank the way that I did. And within three months realized that that was not the case. And she didn't. And, and she had conversations with, this is crazy. You know, you drinking, uh, then yelling, then crying, breaking down, hating yourself and being like, that's not a normal thing. And I tried to, to stop it, but it was so tough to, to, to stop having the desire that I needed to drink that, you know, I started sneaking drinks any way that I could when I felt like I really needed one. Um, you know, and she, she told me when we were dating for six months and I kind of had it under control as far as when I needed to sneak my drinks, she said, listen, I know you've moved around the country with your job, but you're not going to actually, yeah, like I'm not going to move unless we're married. And my thought process was, okay, well then we got to, I got to propose real quick because I don't want to lose this girl um, because I, I did love her. And so within yeah 10 months I proposed and uh, you know, we got married within just over two years uh, of being together. And during that time I was still uh, sneaking drinks here and there. And to the point where I would, uh, you know, go to a grocery store and get a couple tall boys of like a butt ice, ice beer that's malt alcohol. It has higher alcohol per volume. And I would pound them as fast as possible. And it was only a mile away from my house. So I didn't see it as drinking and driving because by the time that the alcohol hit my blood, if I got pulled over at that point, it wouldn't show that I was drunk. Because even though I drank what was equivalent, to 12 beers in 10 minutes that wouldn't show up for an hour down the road. And I would already be at my house, you know? So I would always rationalize like, this isn't that bad. It's not drinking and driving because I'm still sober when I get home. Um, and there was just so, so much hate that I had for myself. Um, like I wasn't good enough, you know? And I, uh, ended up, Two, two years into being uh, married. So this was, you know, about, uh, I guess, four years of being with my wife. There was a, a day that I had to go into work and then I went to the uh, grocery store. I had my, my beers and I would always take my beers and put the empties in my trunk because then I would cash those in for money that I could then use to buy more alcohol and I had those beers and then I got home about six o'clock at night and forgot that I had already had those beers and I poured a, a tall glass of vodka and then had picked up fast food and diet Coke and I had that and I had forgot then when I was drinking that, that I actually put any alcohol in it. So I chugged it down quickly forgetting that there was alcohol in it. I thought it tasted a little funny, but I didn't, I didn't remember 
that there was almost an entire bottle in there. And I went up to my room. I had all that alcohol and then ended up blacking out, which was, was a pretty, you know, uh, pretty normal thing. But when I blacked out, I was uh, on the toilet and the bathroom uh, crawling around and my wife came up and found me and said, what happened? What happened to you? What did you take? And she thought that I was on drugs um, because of my actions. And the only thing that I could get out was alcohol. And when I said that, she said, where, what, where alcohol? And I said, my trunk. And she opened up my trunk and all my empties were in there and they just spilled out. Um, and it was it was that night that she actually uh, on her phone video recorded me what kind of a mess I was and then sent this video to me. And in the morning, because um, I was doing mornings, um, morning radio where I had to, you know, I had to be on at 5 a.m. I had to be on and be somebody else. And I didn't call in sick. I went in and I was still drunk and I had to play the character until um, 10 a.m. when I was done. And I went to the studio next to me because I knew that there was a woman that had originally hired me in four years earlier to the job in Burlington, Vermont. She was in AA um, and had 10 years sobriety. And I said, um, Mary, I think I have a problem with alcohol. Actually, no, I know I have a problem with alcohol. And she said, okay, hold on. Jumped on her computer, found out there was a meeting two hours later at noon and said, we're going to go to the brown bag. And I said, thank you. And she took time out of her day during her lunchtime. And we went to a meeting and she said to me, um, no, you're, you might not know anything at this meeting. None of it might stick if you're still drunk, but just listen how you can identify. Don't compare yourself. Just identify and just sit there. And she didn't ask any questions as far as like what happened or question like if I was an alcoholic because this disease of alcoholism, as I found out, is the only person that can diagnose you as an alcoholic is you. Um, and I, I heard my, my story, little bits of my story as far as, um, just needing to escape and the self-hatred, uh, in the speaker that was speaking in that meeting. Uh, and he told his story and as they were going around the room, everyone said their name and, and you know, uh, I'm an alcoholic and it got to me. And I said, I'm Mike, I'm an alcoholic. And she said to me afterwards, you know, you didn't have to say that. And I said, oh, I know, I know I am. Because when I, all that time that I was drinking alone, that's, a, there's a lot of time to reflect, you know, when it's just you, whether it's in a car or you at home. And I was trying to stop for a very long time and I wasn't able to. Um, and I knew the only way that I could do this is if, um, I had help. And so I went to that meeting and there was another coworker of, a, of mine who had 10 years and then relapsed and then just picked up the year chip, uh, a couple months before. And she took me to my second meeting 
And that's where I found my sponsor. And he gave me some suggestions of how to walk through the steps. And he said, why don't you, here's a big book. Why don't you look at the doctor's opinion and read that? Because this is a disease. And here's, here's how it works for many alcoholics. And then we went through the steps. And with step one and writing down how my life was unmanageable, um, he said, you know, write down three ways how life's been unmanageable. And I filled an entire page because there were so many times where I felt like I couldn't do it. You know, I felt like uh, every day as things came up, there was a abacus, like a counter of every single time something came that was bad. I would say, okay, that's one beer. That's two beers. That's three beers. And in my head, I would literally imagine like, you know, if even if a day was good, then I would be like, all right, that's a success. That's a beer. That's another. So it didn't matter if it was good or bad. You know, it was something where I earned these and you're not going to take them away from me. And I remember a couple times where I was the DUI before I came into the rooms where I would get really mad if I had to be the DUI that time. And like, you know, you guys really owe me, you know, when really I would take advantage when it was somebody else's turn and, and I didn't know them anything, you know? So the big struggle that I had um, coming into the rooms was really resentment for, I would say definitely, the majority of the first year, there was a lot of resentment as I was going through the steps. Still, if there was a party or we were at a place and there were people that were drinking, I needed an exit plan to make sure that I could get out of there. And the unfortunate thing was there were friends of mine when I got to Burlington, Vermont, who didn't necessarily drink the way I did. But after a while, they ended up drinking that way because I would turn anything that was into a little get together into an all out party, you know, and really amp up their habits. So when I then, you know, it's like if there's a hurricane going on, you're in the middle of the hurricane and then you step back and you look and you're like, Whoa, like what a mess. And it was all the mess that, that I was uh, partly to blame, if not mostly. And there was, I was so mad that they were still partying that they still wanted to do these things. And I expected them to change right away and they didn't. So uh, there were friends of mine that I had to um, distance myself from and not hang out with, uh, you know, change my people, places and things in my life that were no good for me. Um, and slowly really implement some change in my life, I had, uh, you know, one of the, well, a couple of the steps, really. I mean, spirituality and the, the whole program, but um, step two and three of realizing that there might be a higher power out there and then actually turning your, your will over was something that I had to go through the motions of for three months every single day until I actually started seeing maybe there is something to this, you know, there was uh, a Halloween party that I, I still kept working the same job. Um, and there was a Halloween party at a bar that I had to, to work and host. 
and all of my friends and my wife's friends um, were there drinking heavily. And I was, I remember my Halloween costume, I was dressed up as a pharaoh wearing sandals. And there was one of our mutual friends who at this point I had had just under two months of sobriety and he was pouring alcohol on my feet, spilling his beer on my feet and saying, you can't drink this. You can't drink this. And they were, they were acting crazy because I had got them into a VIP area and they were able to have a really good time. And, um, there was a bit of a fight that broke out and some of our mutual friends did not want my wife and I to still be together because of everything that I had done in the lying. And they were spreading lies that when this fight broke out, that I didn't take my wife's side in the club. And so she was screaming and yelling and crying. And it was, it was, it was all madness around me. And I was about ready to break down. And I looked across the room and as I was hosting on a platform on one side of the room that held about a thousand people across the way was the DJ playing the music. And I said, no way. And I recognized him on the other platform from the rooms of AA. And he also was an Alcoholics Anonymous. So for the two hours left, of the night, I just was laser locked right on him. And I, he was my higher power at that point. And I just looked at him and knew if he's not drinking, I'm not drinking. And that got me through that night. And I called my sponsor on the way home and I told him everything was good, you know, and in early sobriety, there are those moments that as, as you do get sober, as I got sober, I got to see, clearer you know but you also have to just take some time you know and if you feel like you're losing your mind you have to share you know that's why going to 90 meetings in 90 days is something i did and then once i hit 90 days then i did it again and i was able to make it through the steps within the first pretty much 13 14 months all the way through um and some of those friends especially the one that was pouring alcohol on my feet on Halloween night. He actually came to the meeting when I picked up my year chip, he came and our other friends and he apologized and kind of got some of that. And I didn't even bring up, you know, the fact that that really hurt me. You know, he just, he saw some change in me and I've been able to experience some pretty amazing things in sobriety um you know the the making amends process was really tough um still like, like i mentioned earlier some of the friends that i had in chicago because of my ego they still want nothing to do with me um you know and they don't see any change because if you're not around somebody you know you don't really see much change and other friends that i had in iowa and fargo north dakota they, they can't believe it, you know, like they, they're not seeing me, but they're like, this is, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, and my wife and I, it was challenging the first, uh, you know, several, several months and even 
year because all that trust was broken, you know, but we worked through it and we stayed in Burlington, Vermont for the first year and a half into sobriety and an opportunity came for us to move to Florida. And before it was all me, you know, it was my, my career's most important, you know, uh, we, we're only going to move if I have a job and through the suggestions in the rooms, you know, you're supposed to not make any big changes the first year, but it was a year and a half in. And I talked to my sponsor and he said, listen, if you know, the job and the career you have right now, you feel like it's not going someplace, you're not growing and spiritually you're growing. Then maybe this is where you need to be. So we ended up moving to Orlando and I started doing a 90 and 90 again. Uh, and the first meeting I went to was where we used to vacation, which was in Celebration, Florida, which is pretty close to Disney. And uh, a lot of the people in our home group right now in Celebration, Florida, were people that I heard when I was vacationing. And I remember hearing their, their shares and saying, man, if I live here, this is my home group. This is where I'm going to be. And, uh, I, I look at it like one of the promises, you know, like I just, I put it out there that, okay, I'm going to follow this and see where it takes me. And my sponsor, I asked him the second meeting that I was at in celebration. I asked him if he would be my sponsor and, and um, you know, we've gone through the steps and I did another fourth step with him with some resentments that I had and some work that I still needed to be done because this isn't something that you can just do it once and be done with it. Uh, you always have to grow. You know, I used to think change was a bad thing. Um, now I think change is a necessary thing. And if I'm not changing, complacency um, will allow me to just rest on my laurels and it, it won't put me to a good spot, you know. And in sobriety, um, you know, everybody in the rooms of AA, they've been there for me you know, going through any challenges, whether it's a career challenge or uh, just a year and a half ago, we had uh, our first child, my wife and I, and she had our child uh, two months premature. She was born two pounds, 11 ounces. I called my sponsor and friends in the fellowship and we did a meditation in the bathroom of the hospital Um and really was able to connect and, you know, everybody in the home group, they were sending me messages and there, I know there were prayers going on and now our daughter is doing great, you know, is, is 19 pounds, um, you know, super healthy. And I think without that basis, I mean, an, an alcoholic that is not in treatment and in recovery will find a reason to drink over anything. And if I didn't have that basis of going to meetings in that outlet, I have a built in forgetter and I will forget the tools that allow me to have a great life and to see the positives because everything was negative, doom and gloom and seclusion. And I don't have to deal with that today. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have, um, you know, to have the fellowship that I have, uh, I've had some sponsees over the years, you know, and if they 
can't get sober, I can't take that as, oh, it must be me. You know, I'm the one that didn't work. Um, that, you know, I, maybe I should have worked harder. Um, I know that that's, maybe they just haven't had enough. You know, um, I've, I had a, a sponsee that was going through a tough time and he, I, I was in the meeting in Vermont and day one, I had had, uh, I guess nine months into sobriety, um, at that point. And my sponsor said, hey, listen, if you have anything to teach him, you haven't gone all the way through the steps, but you've already done, uh, up to step eight at that point. So you can teach him what you know and help him. Um, and he ended up going through such a tough time that the second week that I was working with him, he came in and I saw that he had cuts around his neck. And I said, Emmett, what, what's going on there? And he told me that he just the night before tried to commit suicide and tried hanging himself. But when he did it in this closet, the, uh, the closet shelf that he was using it, uh, the pole snapped and he fell to his knees and his daughter ran in the room and hugged, hugged him just because they just got home. His girlfriend and his daughter just got home and he's telling me this in a meeting and I tried to get him help um, and get him into someone that actually works in suicide prevention and has more knowledge because that's what we do. If you don't have that knowledge, we just try to find somebody that does is what I was taught. And unfortunately he ended up the next day committing suicide and taking his life. And that's a tough thing. You know, it's a tough thing when somebody does that, but um, you know, was my sponsor telling me this is going to happen with or without you. This is just his path. It sounds terrible, but the the reality of it is that people will lose their battle with this, and there's nothing that you can do. Um, so I'm I'm grateful to be told that because you know if if I just stopped drinking and was trying to help somebody else out and not doing anything else, that that would be very easily something where I would pick up a drink. You know, if somebody else killed themselves, that I was trying to prevent them from doing that so i mean there's a there's a lot of things in in aa that teach me how to live but also really how to live and, and have a fantastic life and i know it, my life's second to none today i don't take anything for granted um and you know life used to be a roller coaster with a lot of highs and a lot of lows and now you know in the you know, the, the world of uh, Disney World and Walt Disney, that's right in our backyard. It's more like the people mover. You know, it just goes around and you get to actually see everything and uh, see, see it for how, uh, really how special and beautiful it is. Um, so I think, uh, I think that's my time, but I appreciate you guys. And if you are, uh, you know, new or only gone to a couple meetings and you're listening, yeah, I, I hope something I kind of helps you out and know that there's, you know, you're not alone, I think is the, the important takeaway that I had from my first meeting. I felt like I was actually a part of like a, like a super group, you know, with other people 
that were actually trying to find a solution and had found it uh, within the program that, uh, that we do today. So thank you guys so much. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you telling your story. Um, I'd like to go right into like a couple of things that I related to, if that's all right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, I don't know. There's so much that I could relate to. I know we have like completely different stories, but I think a lot of the, you know, our stories on the surface might be different, but a lot of our, like the emotions, you know, human nature, human emotions and the situations we deal with, they're pretty universal. Um, I think early on you mentioned, um, you know, how you, you took your drink and the first time in your life or for a long time or whatever, you felt like you were in control. You had that instant feeling of like, of, of being in control or whatever. And I, and for me, it was, it was kind of similar when I drank, I felt more comfortable with myself and who I was. And it's almost that great delusion of like, you know, me being drunk, I can like now talk to girls, I could be more outgoing and I can do all of this stuff. Um, almost a Jekyll and Hyde, Mr. Or, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing. But um, my uh, Mr. Hyde wasn't as, as destructive at the beginning as, as it was later. But um, I think the, that overall, like, you know, delusion of like, you know, I was so uncomfortable with myself. I was so like, didn't like who I was or whatever. And when I drank, I, I liked that person. But it is almost a delusion because as, as you, your drinking picks up and, and, and the consequences pile up and stuff, you, you're, you think you're being more yourself. You think you're being better. You think you're being, you know, that ego takes over and that drunk ego kind of thing to where we don't even realize, like, what's going on around us. You know, you mentioned your friends stopped hanging out with you and you thought that you know it was you making those decisions when i think in my life that's probably happened a lot of times where i would go about my life and you know sure armageddon was going on around me and the world was falling apart and relationships were crumbling and stuff like that but that wasn't me you know that it wasn't my fault it was like these people are messed up or whatever there's nothing wrong with that with what i'm doing you know, and I think it's a, a, an illusion that once you kind of wake up to that, to, to, you know, towards the end, whatever your bottom might be, your so-called bottom, to where you realize, like, holy smokes, something's not right here. And you look, turn around, you mentioned, like, seeing the, the path of the hurricane that came through or a tornado and all that destruction. And you're like, wow, like, did I do that? But while you're in it, while you're living that way and living that lifestyle, you don't realize it. And um, so I can really relate to that a lot with, all throughout my life. Um, I think uh, so you mentioned the um, the abacus, counting on the abacus, you know, like, oh, this good thing happened. Oh, that's a beer. Oh, this bad thing happened. That's a beer. Uh, for me, like my life was centered around alcohol for a good portion of it or drugs or whatever 
And for me, like it didn't like if I was having a good day, if I had a good day at work or something good happened, I would celebrate by drinking a beer. You know, if I had a, a birthday party to go to, what do you do? You drink. You have a football game. Well, what do you do? You drink. And on the other side of that, if I had something bad happen, you know, I had a bad day at work. Oh, what do I do? I drink. Oh, I'm having a, don't feel well today. I don't like today's just not a good day or something bad happened. You would console. I would console myself with drinking. So, you know, it's 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 is convenient. I could always have an excuse to drink. But the bottom line is no matter what happened, I was drinking. And um, but we like I tend like as an alcoholic, I tend to like justify it. You know, it's like, I deserve this drink. I deserve to celebrate. I deserve to pity myself with a drink. You know, like it was just this, this delusion. And I think that's kind of an underlining theme to your story when you were telling, or at least what I picked up on it is, is this, this idea of, of this illusion that we, we think our life is one way and we think we are one way and we think we're being perceived as one way. And we think the way that we're perceiving the world is the, is the correct way. And it's not until we have a little bit of time and, and, you know, kind of working the steps helps with that and, and talking to other people with like a clear mind where you start to realize how like mucked up our vision was, you know, like none of that, was the actual objective reality of, of what we were doing, you know, and I think it's very powerful. Um, and to end it, I would like to touch on the, on the, on the subject of suicide that you, you touched on a little bit. And I would, I would say like me personally, I, I suffer with depression. You know, I, I have a history of depression. I get depressed and, um, and most of my life and what I did with that is I was drink or drug to battle that or whatever. And, um, I would, uh, you know, isolate, I would keep it inside, you know, not talk to anyone about it, not let anyone know how I felt, you know, everything was okay. I'm fine. Everything's good, whatever, you know, but inside I would be dying, you know, and suffering. And I think a lot of that led to like, you know, my isolation and, and anxiety and stuff like that. Um, one thing I learned about coming into the, the rooms and, and becoming close with people and having a fellowship build up around me is that I, I truly am not alone. If I'm open and I'm honest uh, with the people that I know care about me, then I don't have to deal alone. You know, like even like recently I've been, uh, uh, relatively depressed, you know, like a subtle depression, you know, and, um, where before I would like not tell anyone about it. I've, you know, I let my sponsor know what was going on with me. I let James know the other day, uh, what I was going through and I've let a couple other people know. And that's not to say that like, you know, I want, uh, people to pity me or give me advice or, or whatever. But I think it's important that in living this way that I need to be open. I need to let people know. And the more I'm open, the more I let people inside, 
the the better it is because it truly is that like I'm not alone in this. You know what I'm saying? Everyone deals with bouts of depression or bouts of anxiety at different points in their life. And there's no reason like that I need to keep it inside. If I do keep it inside, it builds and it builds. And then that, that going back to the illusion idea, it becomes stronger to where I think like, I'm always going to be like this. No one understands me. I'm, I'm, no one can help me. This is, and you get that hopelessness. And then we know where that bitter end leaves. So anyone that's out there that does, you know, suffer from depression, which is very common in early sobriety, you know, because our, we had a solution at one point, which was alcohol and drugs. And once that solution is taken away, we don't no longer know how to deal with our emotions and our feelings and who we are. And so anyone that's out there that does deal with that, be open about it talk to people, whether it's one-on-one, if you trust someone, whether it's your sponsor or a friend in the room or anyone, talk to someone. And if you do need to seek outside help, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's no shame with that. You know, the more we're honest about how we feel, the quicker that we can process it and get through it. And it, and it doesn't last, you know, like we might think we're always going to feel this way, but as someone who's been through like the darkest depths of hell, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it will pass. And the more we're open about it, the quicker it will pass. So um, that's all I got. Thank you, Dennis. Oh, Mike. Hi, James here. This has been a wonderful story. Thank you. It's good to hear your share for the first time. Um, I connected with a few things and um, I, I, I was laughing when you said you were the king of the castle in college, you know, you turned 21 and buying alcohol for everyone. Um, when I was, um, still living in Alaska, when I was 17, a friend of mine made a fake ID. So when I went to college at 18, I was that person at 18 buying alcohol for everyone with um, my fake ID in Miami. So I thought that was kind of funny how, um, <laughs> I looked nothing like a 21 year old. I looked like a baby <laughs> and, and these guys at these, these liquor stores are like, yeah, whatever. So anyways, that's when I started. Um, I recommend, I mean, I could relate a lot when you were talking about, um, you know, you, no matter what, if it was good, bad, you were going to drink. There was always a reason to drink. Um, I had my first son at 23. And every time he had a birthday party or a celebration, great, let's get a cooler full of beer. Bunch of kids running around. Beer time. You know, it was just a downward spiral. Um, I could also relate to the hating of myself. I Before I finally worked these steps and got rid of all the stuff that was torturing me, I, I couldn't stand myself. And I couldn't stand myself, so I drank uh, to get out of myself and to not think about, you know, all the wreckage I have done, all the lapse in judgment. Um and lastly, um, I definitely recognized that I was um, a sneaker. I, um, I also sneaked a lot of beer. And my thing was the little airplane bottles full of alcohol. And I remember I would go in the closet. I would drink maybe three or four, and I'd hide them 
in a box on the top shelf. We up there, and like she was just littered with little bottles all over the place. And I was like, "Huh? How did those get there?" <laughs> so again, I wanted to say thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you at the next meeting. Thank you, guys. Thanks for letting me uh, share my story and being here. We will be back next week, uh, James. You ready, buddy? You're going to be sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And how? <laughs> that that'll be that'll be on uh, episode four. In closing, we're entirely ready to have all these character defects removed, remembering to focus on one day at a time. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.